Good morning once again, Bell Shoals family. My name is Corey Abney, and I have the privilege of serving here as the lead pastor. And I want to welcome those of you with us here at our Branding Campus. And as always, we want to welcome our online audience from all across the country. It's such a joy to have you with us today. And I want to thank you for your participation, for your uh, service, your encouragement last weekend over the course of Good Friday and our Easter celebration services on Saturday and Sunday. We welcomed almost 6,000 people to Bell Shoals in person last weekend. We praise the Lord for that. We had several thousand here for our Easter family fun night and those 40,000 eggs actually lasted over a minute. And uh, that was pretty cool to see. It was uh, somewhere in the 90 to 120 second range. And uh, that's pretty good for the number of children that we had here. And uh, it was just a wonderful weekend. Um, it's so appropriate that we just got done singing about gratitude. And uh, we, just, we just praise the Lord for how he's at work. And I just want to say thank you for your prayers. Um, your encouragement, your participation. Uh, let, me, let me throw a shout out to our students who stuffed thousands of eggs. Come on, give it up students, let's go. Uh, I'm so grateful. Uh, that was awesome. I know they were so excited to do that and uh, maybe sample a little bit as they stuffed those eggs. But um, it was just a special weekend. And uh, again, we're just grateful. And I'm excited today to kick off a new teaching series called Roadblocks. And absolutely, it was the easiest filming our creative team has ever had to do. They literally just went down here to Bloomingdale and Bell Shoals and they were done. And if you uh, know anything about this area, you know, there's always construction, there's traffic, there are a lot of bad drivers. Um, if you're uh, an injury attorney, this is a great place to live and work. Uh, I've never seen so many billboards. I'm like, how many attorneys are there in the world? I think 85% of them are right here in Tampa. And uh, I know why. And so, you know, for those of us who live here, uh, it's mostly a blessing. Uh, we have like the sunshine and beaches and fun and just greatness. But um, we also have a lot of traffic. And so if some of you would consider moving, um, we would really appreciate that. No, hey, we know all about roadblocks here. And so here's what this series over the next few weeks is all about. It's about the spiritual roadblocks in our way from where we are to where we need to be. And in life, there are always roadblocks that surface. And some of the roadblocks we're gonna talk about over the next few weeks are very, very significant. And this is very practical. I think it's gonna be super helpful and encouraging as we navigate some of the most common roadblocks we face in life. Because Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. Life to the fullest. And there are some roadblocks that we encounter on the journey from where we are to where Jesus wants us to be, where he's created us to be, called us to be. And we need to tackle these roadblocks, identify them so that we can move around them and get to where we need to be. And the very first roadblock we're going to cover today is by far the most difficult roadblock. For this reason, it's the hardest one to identify but it's also the one that is the most destructive. Now that's a really bad combination. 
To have a roadblock in your life that is incredibly destructive, that is also incredibly difficult to identify. And it's, it's something that all of us wrestle with. It's a universal struggle. It's a universal roadblock. I guarantee you every single one of us this week are going to struggle with it. It's just so difficult for us to recognize. Today we're going to talk about the roadblock of pride. See, no applause. No, I knew, I knew it. I just... Man, this is a tough one. We're coming out of the gate strong, all right? It's actually a lot more difficult to talk about pride than it was to talk about snakes on Easter Sunday, all right? (laughs) That was easy compared to this. Pride. Why is pride such a difficult roadblock to navigate? Well, as I said, it's, it's very difficult to recognize in ourselves, although it's easy to recognize in others. To this extent, can I just be honest with you about your struggle? Let me just tell you what you're going to struggle with here over the next few minutes. As I'm talking about pride, your mind is going to identify some people in your life who need to hear this message. Right now, you're already thinking about your spouse. (laughs) You're thinking about somebody in your life. You know, it's like, oh yeah, good. I'm so glad he's talking about this because he or she needs to hear this. And... And we see it in others, but it's very difficult to see in ourselves. Let me tell you another reason this is really, really difficult for us to navigate. Because frankly, we just don't take it that seriously. We really don't take pride that seriously. It's like we've kind of grown accustomed to a world full of arrogant people. We've kind of grown accustomed to a world with self-promotion. We've kind of grown accustomed to a world where, well, sure, there are people who struggle with pride. And we don't take it as seriously as we should. Let me give you an example. If you were in a small group and someone raised their hand and said, hey, listen, in the context of your small group, I'd appreciate if y'all would pray for me this morning because I'm really struggling with lust. And when I see beautiful people, man, I really, I really struggle with some thoughts. You would go home, right, at lunch, be like, how about that creeper in our small group? Right? Like you would feel uncomfortable. Like you would talk about it. Like, hey, you're not going to believe this person that brought this up, confessed this in our small group. What if somebody said, hey, would you all pray for me? I'm struggling with anger and I work with somebody and I've actually given thought to murdering them. You would go home at lunch. You'd be like, how about that cat in our small group that said, they're thinking about murdering somebody. If somebody raised their hand, hey, would you, would you pray for me? I'm really struggling with gluttony. You'd go home like, this person thinking about Thanksgiving all the time. Like, I can't believe they admitted that. Like, like, there are some things that people could confess and you would see it as a big deal. You would see it like, wow, yeah, that person, we need to pray for that person and help that person. I can't believe they, I can't believe they admitted this. Somebody said, hey, I have an addiction. Could you pray? And you'd be like, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that one. I can't believe that person struggles with it. There are just things that you would think, man, that's a big deal. If someone said, hey, would you pray for me today? I'm really, I'm really struggling with a prideful heart. You'd be like, really? Well, this person just said that because they want some attention, want us to pray for them. Like somebody said, hey, I struggle with pride. You'd be like, okay, well, whatever. Join the everybody is, right? You're like, we just don't take it that seriously. We don't view it like other things. Like there are other things in our lives, other roadblocks we're going to talk about that get the headlines. Pride's never one of those things. But here's the thing, 
Pride is the most devastating and crippling roadblock that we will face. And even though we don't take it very seriously, (laughs) I want to show you here, the Lord takes it very seriously. Let me show you one verse of scripture, Proverbs 16, 5. Check this out. The Lord detests the proud. That is a very strong word. God detests the proud. That's not God winking at the proud. That, that God, it doesn't say the Lord detests those who struggle with lust or anger. That's not the Lord detests the proud. Jeremiah 9 says this. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom. Don't let the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. You see, God takes pride very, very seriously because pride is a crippling roadblock from where we are to where we need to be. And so we need to take it serious. The great C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time, said this about pride. Listen, I love this. He said, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free. In other words, we all deal with this. Which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. <laughs> That's right. He said, there is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And then he concludes with this. The essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. For pride leads to every other vice. So let me, let me give you a primary takeaway if you're taking notes. I encourage you to jot this down. Here's what we're going to see today. Pride is the seedbed in which all other sins grow. That's why it's so important that we take this seriously. Pride is the seedbed in which all other sins grow. Every roadblock we're going to talk about over the next few weeks has its roots in pride in our human hearts that often fail to see our need for God in his will, his way. Pride is the seedbed in which all other sins grow. And so let me give you a couple ways to identify it. Here's how we identify how pride works in our lives, okay? Because it's so hard to look in the mirror and say, I'm prideful. It's so hard to look look in your own life and take inventory, right? It's easier to see in others than yourself. So let me give you a couple diagnostics, okay? First of all, make a note of this. Pride leads you to value your way over God's way. Pride leads us to value our way over God's will. Okay, that's the first manifestation of pride in our lives. Here's what it looks like. We value our way over God's will. We make excuses for our behavior at times, especially when we know it violates God's will for us, 
because we convince ourselves, well, God would understand or maybe God's word doesn't apply to us here. No, that command is, is something that's, that's for that day and time, but not us. And we, we, we begin to, here's what pride does. We begin to write our own prescriptions. And the problem is none of us are spiritual physicians. None of us can cure what's deeply wrong with our souls. Therefore, none of us are qualified to write our own prescriptions. But we try. And, and, and so what happens is we, in our pride, we, we, we have these pressure points. You're going to have them this week. I'm going to have them this week. There are going to be pressure points that surface where we're going to have to decide in this area of our lives, our finances, our parenting, our marriage, our work, our integrity, our testimonies on a business trip, whatever it may be. There are going to be pressure points in our lives where we're going to have to decide is God's word, is God's will best. And those moments where we move the other direction, away from God's will, it's always due to pride. We don't identify it as such. It's not easy to see as stealing (laughs) or murder (laughs) or jealousy, but the root cause is pride. We value our way over God's will. That was the reason the first sin ever came into the world. That's the reason that you and I, in these pressure points of decision-making, lean away, veer away from God's will for us because we, we like to govern ourselves. When God's will is at conflict with our way of doing things, our natural disposition in pride is to figure out a way around God's will. So some people just reject God's word outright. More often than not, here's what happens for Christ followers. We modify his word based on what we think is best. See, you don't have to outright reject God's word. A lot of people try to modify it. Because we're convinced that our way is best. But, but here's the thing. I just want you to understand the gravity of this, okay? We don't run the universe. We did not create all that is. We don't really know how all the moving parts fit together. And therefore, we're not qualified to make the decision as to whether or not at this particular juncture in my life, relative to my finances, my kids, my marriage, my work, my testimony, what is truly best to modify God's will and God's word, to take a detour, right? We're not qualified to do that. The great J. Vernon McGee, a great Bible teacher of old said this, listen to this, lean in here, this is great. He said, this is God's universe and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. (laughs) How good is that? That is a snapshot of what it looks like to press against God's will in your pride, right? 
there are moments where we do things our way. We modify God's word. We ignore God's word. Some people just outright reject God's word because we are convinced that we're the governors of our own universe. And J. Vernon McGee is absolutely right. No, no, no. This is God's world. This is God's universe. And God does things his way because he knows that his way is best. And you may think at times your way is best. Here's the problem. You don't have a universe. And the way that you think things ought to work in your universe aren't the way things work in God's universe and you live in God's universe. You are created for God's universe. You are created to know this God who made you and placed you in his universe and you are made to know the life he has given you to the fullest. And pride leads us to value our way over God's will. That's how you'll see it in your life. Some of you are like, I don't know that I'm doing that. Well, now you're lying. See, and you're compounding, you're compounding the sin of pride. No, we all do it. Do any of you really think you've never done this? Do you fail to see the gravity of how this works in your life? Let me give you some examples. Matthew 18, Jesus said, we are to forgive those who wrong us as many times as it takes. He says elsewhere that we're to do good to those who hate us and to pray for those who persecute us. You ever question that? You ever say to God, okay, Lord, I don't think you know what they've done. I can tell you this. There have been many times I've struggled to pray for people who have persecuted me. Who have tried to destroy my reputation, who have attacked my family. Oh, I've thought about praying for them. God, would you? (laughs) Well, I think you get the point. (laughs) I don't have to say it. (laughs) I don't think that's what Jesus meant, right? Pray for those who persecute you. Man, that's hard. I just have to tell you, there have been times in my life when my family's been under attack that I'm like, yeah, God, I'm not praying for these people. No, I'm sure Jesus didn't mean that. I mean, if Jesus had known what I was going to be dealing with here, he wouldn't have said that. My way is best. How about Hebrews 13? Scripture says in Hebrews 13 that the marriage bed is undefiled meaning the joy of sex is to be celebrated fully in the context of marriage. The marriage bed, as an analogy, is a reference to that. How many people today say, hey, I mean, that's so old school to think that I'm going to save myself for the person I'm going to marry and be in covenant with. Clearly, God did not live in the 21st century. That's so unrealistic. My way is better. Matthew 19 Jesus says divorce should only be for serious sexual sin or abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7. Yet there's so many people today who see this as just a common option. You know, marriage is, um, it's just a contract. You know, it's just something that's a cultural norm and you do it because you're supposed to have a nice wedding and you're committing yourself. But if it doesn't work out, no big deal. And, And I understand there are a lot of people who have been a part of some very difficult situations But my point is, how many people in the church today don't see marriage how Jesus saw it? We value our own way. 
How about Romans chapter 1? The scripture says that people will exchange the natural sexual relationship between a man and a woman for all types of sexual deviation. And now we live in a world where you can identify however you want to identify. You can have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. And, 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 and there's this push, you know, for anyone who loves each other be able to marry. People say, no, Paul was writing in a different context. Romans 1 does not apply to us today. I'm pretty sure Romans 1 applies to us today. How about Ephesians 5, guys, where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, unconditionally, sacrificially, fiercely, consistently. Love your wife, whether she deserves your love or not. Love her with sacrifice and service. And some of us are thinking, yeah, well, that was written before my wife was born. No, 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 no. Paul didn't understand the person I live with. Ladies, Ephesians 5 says you're to submit to the leadership of your husband, right? Not in an inappropriate way, but to, to honor and respect the leadership responsibility God's given him, whether he's upholding it or not. And some of you say, well, yeah, I ain't submitting to nobody. <laughs> yeah, you don't know my husband. About Matthew 25, Jesus says, the wicked who don't turn to Jesus for salvation will go into eternal punishment. But those who humble themselves, those who ask for Jesus' forgiveness and salvation will be led into eternal life. There's a lot of people today, by the way, a lot of people who identify as Christ followers who say, no, 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 there's no eternal punishment. There's no hell. A loving God would never send anyone to hell. Well, I'm pretty sure it's in the book. Now, is there anyone I've not yet offended? Um, because I can, I can mention others here. I, I'm hoping you see the point where in our lives, there are roadblocks that surface. The primary roadblock is pride. And what is pride leads to? How do we see it and identify it in our lives? It's going to push your way over God's will. And you're going to come up with modifications, excuses, justifications for why your way and your circumstance is justifiable. The problem is that roadblock is going to keep you from where you need to be because God's word in its context is for your good. Are you sure you've never done this, right? <laughs> we value our way over God's will. Secondly, write, write this down. Here, here's another diagnostic, kind of how we can spot pride in our lives. We maximize our good and minimize our bad. So we value our way over God's will, right? Like we come to the crisis decision points every single week, frankly, where, okay, are we really going to put God to the test? Are we going to honor his word with our money, with our relationships, with our kids, with our spouses, with our careers, with our testimonies? And then are, are we able to see how we naturally maximize our good and minimize our bad? <laughs> We grade on the scale and we always end up on the positive side of the scale. Let me give you a classic example of this back in Luke 18. 
This, this, this involves a young man who was wealthy. He was, he was prominent in his culture. He was well-respected. He was doing all the right things, right? Based on a legalistic system where you could earn your way to God, boy, he was earning it. He, he, he was... Uh, he was a law keeper. Um, he was successful in what he did, which that society would have read as someone God was pleased with. I mean, the system was all messed up, but he was a product of the system. And as such, he was viewed as the poster child. And one day he comes to Jesus, this rich young leader, and he basically wants to justify himself. He basically wants to, in front of everybody who's there, demonstrate that he doesn't need the grace of which Jesus is speaking. He's good to go. So let me show you what happens here. He says to Jesus, he says, um, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Totally works-based, totally what he can do. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, psh, why do you call me good? Only God is good. If you're calling me good, then that's a recognition that I'm God. So let's just start there. I am God. He wasn't ready to recognize that, the rich young ruler, but Jesus starts there. And then he says, but to answer your question, you already know what the commandments say. And look, Jesus is responding to a specific question with a man with a specific demonstration of pride in his soul. He says, what do I need to do? Jesus says, well, look at the commands. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't testify falsely, honor your father and mother. The man says, I've obeyed all these since I was little. I'm good to go. Totally good to go. Thank you, Jesus, for confirming that I will inherit eternal life. Maximizing is good. Minimizing is bad. That's why I've told you before, there are two ways to heaven. The first way is this way Jesus is articulating here. Be a perfect person. Anybody want to sign up for that? Anybody want to stand before God one day and say, God, I did it. <laughs> I did it all. Perfectly. Never harbored a sinful thought. Never enacted a sinful behavior. God, I was perfect. That's the first way to heaven. You got to be perfect. Okay, you can't be perfect. So really there's only one way. The second way, which is the only way, the grace of God. Now, this guy literally thinks he's getting to heaven through the first way. And so when Jesus heard his answer, he said, well, there's still one thing you haven't done. So if you want to know what you need to do to inherit eternal life, go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then you can follow me. And when the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very rich. Now, here's the question you may ask if you're, if you're new to this. Okay, so if I sell everything I have and give it to the poor, can I go to heaven? <laughs> well, no, no, that's not, Jesus isn't saying that's the path to heaven. All right, how do we know this? Because in numerous other places, Jesus talks about salvation and it's never sell your possessions and give it to the poor. So then why does Jesus say that to him? Let me tell you why he says it to him. Because Jesus is giving him a practical application of the first commandment. You will have no other gods before me. Oh, he had never committed adultery. He says he never stole anything and he'd always honored his parents perfectly and all that. Jesus says, all right, here's the true test. The first commandment, have no other gods before me. Here's the test. Sell everything you have. Sell that thing that you're tying your identity to and tether your identity to God. He says, I can't do that. That's why Jesus, when he confronted the woman at the well, did not say to her, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That wasn't her primary threat 
to keeping the first commandment. Her primary threat to keeping the first commandment was tethering her identity to a man. And so Jesus said to her, go bring your husband back. She says, I don't have one. He said, that's right. You've had five. Now you're on the number six potentially. You you know what Jesus always did? He always went straight to the root of our pride. For the rich young ruler, it was his obedience, his works, his wealth. For the woman at the well, it was her identity tethered to a man. You see, the problem with the rich young ruler is a problem that so many people have today. They think that their good outweighs their bad to the extent that when they stand before God one day on the day of judgment, God will let them into heaven because they're going to say, I've maximized my good, I've minimized my bad. The problem is we don't see ourselves properly. We always grade ourselves on the curve, just like the rich young ruler. Let, let me give you an example. Actually, I was just talking to a friend of mine this week. This is amazing. True story. When he was eight years old, he was given a plaque. Put the plaque in his room with some other trophies and stuff. One day, he got upset with his parents. Felt like his parents were mistreating him. Just like a normal eight-year-old boy. He went and picked up that plaque and turned it around. And on the back of that plaque, he wrote, Mom and Dad, and underlined it. And on the other side of the plaque, he wrote his name and underlined it. And here's what he did. Every time his parents offended him, hurt him, bothered him, did something in his eyes that were wrong, he put a mark down. (laughs) He started keeping score. Eight-year-old boy. Yep. My mom and dad are so mean. Mark, mark. Line through. There's five. Ten. And every time he did something that he shouldn't have done or said something he shouldn't have said to his parents, he, he put a mark on his side of the plaque. And he said, you know what? When I, when I looked at that plaque, it was heavily weighted toward my mom and dad, <laughs> as you would expect. My mom and dad are in the wrong. My mom and dad are, 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 are uh, you know, offending me. They're, they're, they're doing me wrong, right? And he, and he said, all of these marks were there for his mom and dad, very few for him. And here's the kicker. You know what that plaque was? A reward he received in Awana from his church. (laughs) Here's the best part of the story. True story. He took an Awana plaque he was given for memorizing scripture, showing up at church, honoring the Lord, and he used that plaque as a scorekeeping mechanism to demonstrate how wrong his parents were to him. You can't make this up. That's the rich young ruler. That's me and you. We grade ourselves on the curve, man. We maximize our good and minimize our bad. And I'm sure if I were an eight-year-old kid keeping score, I know this to be a fact. My plaque would have looked the same way. And we just seldom see ourselves as we are. And so pride, how does that manifest itself? How do we see it? Well, we value our way over God's will. These decision points we have every week, we maximize our good. We minimize our bad. We see the bad in others more readily than we see it in ourselves. And, and, and therefore, the only hope in overcoming this is not to try to be less prideful. The only hope we have to overcome it is to submit ourselves who, to the one who lived in perfect humility and joy, and that is Jesus. The only way to overcome it is to grow closer to Jesus, to lean into Jesus, to tether our identity to Jesus. And therefore, make a note of this last thing. I want you to see the positive outworking of what this means to live a life without the roadblock of pride 
with the joy of humility. Here it is. Humility is a happiness. Listen, as you leave here today, just remember that. Humility is a happiness to give God the glory for who we are, what we have, and where we're going. Oh, humility is a happiness. That your life isn't ultimately about you. That your life is ultimately about the one who's created you, the one who has blessed you, the one who has provided for you, the one who has gifted you. Yeah, you work hard. Yes, you earn a living as you should. Yes, you do all things for the glory of God. Yes, you, you, see, you see so much good in your life. Listen, the scripture is clear. Every good and perfect gift we have comes down from the Father of lights. And you know what humility does? It cultivates a happiness in us that, listen to me, does not diminish who we are, what we have, or what we do. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And it's cultivating a happiness to give God the glory. To point others to him. To talk about the good things that he's done for you. And not to allow the roadblock of pride to elevate itself in your heart to where you begin to believe your own press clippings. That's why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those they think are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose the things despised by the world. Things can counted as nothing at all. And he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. He is the one who governs this universe as he sees fit. And that's always for our good. And God has also united you with Christ Jesus. That's the cross. Road. That's where you encounter humility and joy and life to the fullest. And Jesus, for our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. We make ourselves right with God. He made us right with God by his grace, by his goodness, by his sacrifice. He made us pure and holy, free from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you're going to boast, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Amen. We boast in the Lord. We don't shy away from working hard. We don't shy away from using our gifts. We don't shy away from doing good. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And it's cultivating a happiness that tethers itself to the goodness of God and the glory of God so that you testify routinely to others that all that you have in this world that is good is because of the goodness of God. You boast in the Lord. Yes, you boast in the Lord. And so here's how you cultivate this humility. Let me give you a few practical stabilizers and we're done. A few things in God's word that really help us then to tether our happiness to humility, to, to give glory to God. First of all, listen, the, the humility stabilizer for money is generosity. That's why Jesus said to the rich young ruler, man, you want to follow me, go sell everything you have. You're tethering your identity to what you have. Get rid of it. See if I'm enough. You know, one of the primary reasons God requires us to give, asks us to give generously through the work of the local church. Do you know why he does that? It's not because he needs dollars and cents. It's because our hearts 
desperately need generosity to prevent ourselves from cultivating a pride and an arrogance that's tethered to our stuff. And here's the humility, the joy stabilizer for our money. It's generosity. And the more you give, the more blessed you are. And it cultivates a spirit where you're not tethering your identity to what you have. The, the, the stabilizer for popularity, serving others. Why does Jesus talk so much about serving others? I'll tell you why. Listen to me. This world is not about you. You are not the boss. You're not. And so how do I kind of guard my heart against the pride that's tethered to a popularity, me being the center? I serve. I, I, I give of myself, not just my dollars and my, 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 my time and talents, right? Third, look, the stabilizer for image, we think of the woman at the well here, is authenticity. You don't have to hide who you are. Can I tell you the most awesome thing? I think one of the most awesome things about knowing Jesus personally is he loves you for who you are. Jesus doesn't say, if I'm going to love you, you got to be more like someone else. He loves you. And the stabilizer for image and the pride that comes in our day through projecting a certain image to others is authenticity. Just be you. God is glorified. In you. And I think this is such an important word. Listen to me, students. Listen, guys, listen to me. We live in a world that elevates image. Our pride is so often tethered to our image, not our authenticity, not just our, our faithful following of Jesus for who we are and how we are made. We, we have to fit this certain mold or project this certain image. Listen, when I was growing up, okay, I, here's how I would send text messages to pretty girls in my class. Because I, I sent a lot of text messages. Here's how I did it. I wrote down on a piece of paper this text. Do you like me? Yes, no, please circle one. Anybody else with me on that? That was my text messaging. And I would fold it up and I'd send it and say, hey, pass it down there. And they'd pass it down to the girl and the pretty girl. And she would take it and she'd send it back. She would text me back. And every single time she circled no. Every time. Didn't matter the pretty girl. Every grade, every time, no. And you know what that taught me? That I'm ugly, but it, all, it also taught me, it also taught me not everybody's going to like me. Now let's fast forward to 2023. There are millions of people in the world, lean in here, whose identity is shaped by how many strangers like them. And that is a horrible way to live your life. Do you know what your heavenly father thinks of you? He loves you for you. You say, but I'm not you. <laughs> well, that's good. You probably get some my circle yes on that little piece of paper. <laughs> the stabilizer for money is generosity. The stabilizer for popularity is serving others. The stabilizer for image is authenticity. The stabilizer, check this out, for entitlement is gratitude. We sung about it today, gratitude. Some of you think, you know what, if I could just have more, I would, I would 
I would, you know, be more content. You know, you know, you know what the uh, actual, you know what the truth is of our pride? The more you have, the more you feel like you deserve. And you think, well, well the more I have, you know, the, the more freed up I would be. No, actually, the more you have, the more entitled you can become. That's why some of the most entitled people on planet Earth are people who have always had more than they've needed. Gratitude is, hear me, God, I don't deserve anything. And everything I have is a gracious gift. And I'm, I'm appreciative of this. Whether I live on 30,000 a year or 30 million, God, I'm grateful. Lastly, lastly, the stabilizer for having stuff is having Jesus. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. You know what? We have more stuff as a society than any society in the history of the world. We have a lot of stuff. Do you know what um, people in Haiti don't have? Garage sales. There's no, there's no garage sales in third world countries. There's not enough extra stuff laying around that they're like, yeah, I just need to get rid of this. I've never heard in any of my travels all around the world in third world countries, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. No. No, there's not enough stuff going around. And, and so we're blessed. And we, we thank the Lord. I mean, he's blessed us with more than we need, right? And, and so what's the stabilizer to having all this stuff, to being blessed, to having more than we need? I tell you what the stabilizer is, a humility that says, God, I don't have all this stuff because I am the stuff. I have all this stuff because of your goodness and grace. And I didn't have to be born to parents in the United States. I didn't have to be born to parents who, who, who immigrated here. I didn't have to be in a, in, a, in a place where I am today, where I have more than I need. God, every good and perfect gift comes from you. You see, humility is a happiness to give God the glory for who you are, for what you have, and for where you're going, because where you are going as a follower of Jesus is to eternal glory where you will live forever with him, right? And we give him the glory for that. And so all the stuff in our lives can easily blind us to, to the greatest gift of all, that's Jesus. And so listen, We've got to stabilize. We've got to avoid the roadblock of pride. We've just got to be sensitive to it, open to it, to see how our way often collides with God's will. Choose God's will. To maximize our good, minimize our bad. No, be honest with yourself about your need for grace and cultivate this humility, this happiness to give God the glory, to live with gratitude, and I promise you this, as we work against that pride, we cultivate that humility, we do it by tethering our life to Jesus and his salvation, then we can live with joy and we can experience the very best that he has for us. Because as Jesus says, what does it do you to gain the whole world but lose your soul? No. That's why as a kid I used to sing this, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail pierced hand than to be a king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Is that your testimony today?